Good morning. We'll pause now for the reading of God's Word, um, and we'll start with Psalm 80, which is written for the director of music to the tune of the Lilies of the Covenant. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars ravage the forest, uh, boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty, look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And now if you're able, please stand for the reading of the gospel from Luke 10, verses 1 through 11. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse, or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town, we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning, uh, Caleb Schrockhurst. 
Um, we are glad to welcome him um, as part of our Soothing Psalms for the Soul series, um, and his message is called God Makes Things Great Again, so we look forward to hearing from him, but let me just tell you a little bit about him first. Caleb Schrockhurst has a passion for intercultural bridge building at the intersection of God's kingdom and social justice issues. He has served as the Virginia Mennonite Conference's racial justice and equality leader since 2021. And Caleb served with the Mennonite Central Committee in Hanoi, Vietnam for two years, and is the author of 65 Years of Walking Together, the MCC Vietnam Story. He holds an Associate of Arts from Heston College, a Bachelor of Arts in English from Eastern Mennonite University, and he will complete his Master of Arts in Religion at Eastern Mennonite Seminary in December of this year. So please just join me in welcoming him to speak with us this morning, and we look forward to, to hearing from you, Caleb. Good morning. Uh, it's really good to be with you all. Um, I've heard a ton about this congregation over the years. In fact, my dad attended here in the first year this congregation was forming, uh, well before I was born, of course. Um, I also want to thank Andrew for the invitation. Uh, I work closely with, closely with him on the Virginia Conference Racial Justice Task Force. Um, it's been a real delight to get to know him and hear about this congregation through him. So although he uh, is not here, I would have enjoyed connecting with him. I'm also happy to help uh, him have a break. So, um, And I know this congregation has a really neat kind of preaching team, so it's really fun to, to be here. So I want to start this morning uh, by sharing just a brief story. Um, at the beginning of July, I was lucky enough to be able to travel to Indonesia uh, to attend Mennonite World Conference. Um, and I'll mention a few other thoughts from the conference throughout the sermon. But before and after the, con the conference, I visited two different communities. Um, the first community I went to right when I arrived is a slum community. Uh, the people who live there uh, are garbage collectors. They sort through the trash and then sell the recycling for pennies, but they make their living this way. Uh, this community really suffers from lack of education, and, and many children still drop out of school by late elementary school to join their, their parents in their work. Uh, they're squatters. They aren't able to own their land. Uh, and they're living in Jakarta, a, a megacity. It can be so anonymous and lacking many of the support networks of the village, which they left behind to come to the city in search of work. But at the end of my time, I, I had the chance to stop in a, in a different uh, place, a different community. And in many ways, it seemed similar, but it also couldn't have been more different. Uh, there were small family businesses running in everything from different entrepreneurial ventures and, and crafts. There were kids finishing high school, um, many even beginning to go to college. There's this really neat community-run school I got to visit uh, where poor moms with only an elementary school education are able to teach what they know to help support children in their education. And there are deep support relationships and mutual care far beyond what we sometimes experience here in the West. And so these kind of bookend visits uh, at the beginning and end of my trip, I was often meditating what led these two communities in such different directions? Why did I experience so much hope in one and so much despair and disappointment in the first one? But actually, I've been lying to you because I actually visited the same community twice. Uh, I visited at the beginning of my trip a, a VM, Virginia Mennonite missions worker I know who lives in Jakarta. And at the end of the trip, I returned there again. Um, and why did I describe this community to you in two such different ways? 
Um, and really, I think it's because this psalm, for me, sp- speaks so deeply into the need for us to find ways to shift perspective. And if we can look at our communities with positive and hopeful views, we can see things that are extremely different um, than if we're only seeking out the negative. And I share this because I believe God asks us frequently throughout the scriptures to shift our perspective, have scales fall off our eyes, and to see the gifts God has already given to us, to see the kingdom at work. And the psalmist of Psalm 80 really does uh, seem to be struggling to shift their perspective. He's wondering, as, as many of us are wondering today, the author of this psalm, why is there so much sadness in the world? Why is God doing this? Why have our political fortunes shifted? Uh, why isn't God saving us, saving our institutions in our way of life? Now, I don't want to diminish lament. I think lament is a, is a fantastic and often neglected in the West part of our faith tradition. Lament is a faithful response by people uh, to cry out to God over the injustices in the world, and we should do this with the psalmist. And we far too often forget that Jesus himself was a man of sorrow, and we must follow him in this too. But this psalm, in particular, I worry, can point us in a bit of an odd direction. The psalmist can't seem to see God at work anywhere. God doesn't seem to be acting in a way that makes sense to the psalmist, and thus we have this psalm praying for restoration and salvation even as God may be at work in his community. And this raised the question for me, what if we are lamenting while God is doing things that God wants to happen? What if the salvation, the restoration that God envisions for us isn't the salvation we envision for ourselves? What if God's kingdom isn't the kingdom that we thought it was? So praying with the psalmist for restoration and salvation is well and good. But I believe we must look to Jesus to know what salvation and restoration truly look like. They're not often the political, traditional political salvation that we expect and that this psalmist seems to be referring to. The restoration and salvation Jesus brought are very different than what the old covenant expected. And we need to be extremely clear that establishing an ethnicity-based kingdom, an earthly kingdom, is clearly not what Jesus' mission was. And it shouldn't be the mission of his followers today. Working to remind our fellow Christians of this is extremely important in our current U.S. political climate, where fear and ethnocentrism of many forms have shaped what we think God's kingdom looks like. So I'm I'm very aware today that I'm preaching with a, a somewhat provocative title, and I'm willing to share with you that Andrew suggested the title and the theme, so um, I will do my best, um, but I also, yeah, anyways. Um, But before we get into some of the nitty-gritty, and there will be some nitty-gritty, I want to start with our vision. What was I talking about when I talked about Jesus' salvation or Jesus' restoration? What does Jesus' kingdom look like? The first and most important thing I think that God's kingdom looks like is what we need to remember is that the kingdom of God has already and always come near. If we look in the right way, we can see God's kingdom. So as in the introduction stated, I was an English major, and and one thing I took away from my really enjoyable, although not particularly uh, preparing me for the job market uh, time as an undergrad, um, was the idea that the medium is the message. Uh, I think a really obvious example of this is with tweets. 
No matter how well-crafted a tweet is, at the end of the day, it's still a tweet. It is confined by being this short, pithy statement that, that leads us, it, it can't not be a tweet. And at the end of the day, the medium is the message. And I think this applies a little bit to the kingdom and to this Luke 10 passage. The means of building the kingdom is the kingdom itself. How did Jesus send out his first followers, the 72? He sent them out poor, two by two, relying on one another and hospitality of other people. Jesus' mission of restoration is a mission via poverty and imperfection. Jesus, of course, could have sent out his followers. He could have called us to be conquerors. But this is a temptation that Jesus constantly avoided. He sends his followers in peace, humility, and poverty not via coercive violence or government action. We need to remember that this is the Jesus we follow. And I think it's clear that the Jesus of the Gospels and the desired Messiah of the Old Testament are extremely, extremely different. Jesus of the Gospels remains a revolutionary. Part of what gives me so much hope for Christians in the Bible is the simple, beautiful message of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, the Messiah, is fully God but he's also fully man, fully human. He's sad, he's often tired, disappointed, working with imperfect, seemingly ill-prepared people throughout his ministry. In an impossible situation, as a conquered people on the margins of the Roman Empire, restoration and salvation for Jesus came at a difficult political time. But restoration and salvation came as a powerless child And that child grew to be killed for his faithfulness to love and to nonviolence. And this is very different uh, from how people in the Old Testament understood God, and it's different how they understood the the coming of the Messiah. And it's clear that Jesus' mission of restoration is, is not the same restoration that this psalmist is praying for. The psalmist seems to desire ethnic purity, a restoration of only his, his people. Um, he seems to re- desire good standing for a nation state in terms of otherworldly powers. And even seems to condition, in the last few verses of the psalm, seems to condition his worship on political restoration of the kingdom of Israel. This is not Jesus' message. It's not the one he preached, nor is it the one he lived out. And it's also clear that Jesus didn't just come to to reach out to ethnic Israelites. Jesus rejects over and over the idea of restoring the political nation state in favor of a grassroots, people-to-people spreading of the gospel of peace and healing. The Jesus of Luke 10 sends us out not as wolves to restore a kingdom, but as lambs among wolves. We go in small groups uh, with the knowledge of a bigger following of Jesus. And of course, we're never alone in this. So I love the Old Testament, and and I think there's so much to learn from it, and there are so many times when I do pray this psalm as a psalm of lament, but it's also okay to admit that we can't always read the psalms and think, well, this is pointing and describing the Messiah Jesus that came, because things did change between the Old and New Testament. So as a small thought experiment here, I wonder, what if we gave this psalmist the ability to create their Messiah? Would that Messiah look like Jesus? the Jesus of Luke 10? Or would that Messiah uh, look like the Messiah that the Pharisees and the disciples were expecting, a a Messiah who is going to bring them political independence from Rome through bloody revolution? Or would that Messiah look like a humble, poor servant? Or would he look rich and powerful like Trump? So these are hard times politically, as you well know in the nation's capital, and I'm glad to have a little bit of distance from it sometimes. 
And I can't say that things aren't going to get worse before they get better. But I'm really glad to be a part of a faith family all the world over that is working for peace in many and various ways. But part of what makes our current political divisions and political issues so tough is the fact that some of what I understand as the most hateful and, and short-sighted political policies seem to have deep Christian backing. Why did so many of the rioters on January 6th carry Christian symbols? How can we understand violence committed in the, the name of the Prince of Peace? What would lead Christians follower of a servant king sent to redeem the world to fear and hate their fellow man and God's creation? Obviously, there are, are many, many facets, but today I want to zoom in on kind of the extreme fringes of, of this Christian nationalist movement, often called white Christian nationalism, which I fundamentally believe is a dangerous form of idolatry, uh, linking the church and the state, linking God's salvation and restoration to political power and restoration. And we, as people from free church traditions, know where this union of church and state will lead in crisis for both the church and the state. So what is white Christian nationalism? It's something that many of us intuitively know about, but we can also turn to, to some scholarship here. So I wanna start with a quote from Phil Gorski, uh, who's a sociology professor at Yale and co-author of The Flag and the Cross, uh, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. He places three ideas at the center of white Christian nationalism, calling them a trinity. So these three ideas, quote, are freedom, order, and violence, which means a kind of libertarian freedom for people like us, us being above all straight, white, native-born Christian men, order for everyone else, which means racial and gender order above all other things, and then finally a kind of righteous violence directed against anyone who attempts to violate that order." End quote. So I like this book and I, I, I like this quote because it does give us a, point us towards the core of this movement. But I also want to state clearly that white Christian nationalism isn't just a threat to democracy, but it's also a threat to the way of Jesus. It is a corrupted Christianity. As stated above, white Christian nationalism is a threat to our country, but it's also a growing threat to the church, turning many Christians away from the Jesus of the Gospels and turning away, driving away many people interested in Jesus away from Christianity. So a lot of white Christian nationalism begins in a mythic past that never really existed. And, and sometimes I wonder, did the past that the psalmist envisioned restoration to really exist either? But specifically, all three portions of white Christian nationalism, white, Christian, and nation, I believe, are fundamentally misunderstood by this movement. They're fairly ahistoric categories, and I, I know that Andrew and you as a church have been working through some of these misconceptions. But first, on the, on the idea of whiteness, who is defined as white, who is defined as powerful in a society, continues to shift today. And an incredible diversity of culture, language, and genetics make up the community that we today would know as white. And this kind of fear of change of all three of these categories lies so deeply at the heart of white Christian nationalism. Fear of change, fear of outsiders, and fear of the other. But I also feel it ignores the true history of Christianity, which has always been a plural movement. Christianity and Judaism, from Pentecost onwards, they have always been uh, linguistically and geographically diverse. The diverse Jewish community just grew and grew in its uh, multiculturalness from the very beginning of the foundation of the church. 
If we forget that God speaks through many cultures and in many languages, it is a huge mistake and a huge loss to our ability to understand the beauty of God's kingdom. Trying to force similar worship styles, similar language onto God's racially and linguistically diverse body badly misses the point and fails to offer peace to other Christians who should be fellow, seen as fellow people of peace. I also want to just briefly draw our attention to this idea that's mentioned, the drawing of lines, trying to define for other people who are real Christians, who are real Americans. This is sometimes subtle and it's sometimes obvious. And again, race factors very heavily here. Who gets freedom, who gets order, and who gets violence often comes down to race and gender. But typically, it's white men get freedom at any cost, order for everyone else on a sliding scale into violence the more distant you get from the norm. But it's important to remember that this is radically opposite from the early days of the church. Recently, I was reading through Acts, and what struck me from, from this time going through a book that I'm familiar with, and I love how new things can emerge, it struck me how quickly the gospel becomes decentralized. Churches are springing up in many, many communities, and they're all led very quickly by local people, local people of different ethnicity, local people of different language, of different heritages. Similarly, when the 72 are sent out and empowered to give peace and listen to anyone, anywhere they go, they're empowered to eat and drink with any who seek revival and any who receive the peace that the disciples offered to them. So to draw us back to this idea of restoration, what, what does restoration look like in a white nationalist framework? And is that God's kingdom? Gorski also points us to two other facets here, that economic salvation and political dominance over, other are deemed, over others are deemed as part of restoration, which we must, of course, reject. In terms of economic salvation, we need to hear the economic concerns of all of our brothers and sisters in the country, certainly. But placing, you know, cutting taxes or policies that favor economic growth over policies that provide enough for the poorest, enough food for the hungry, is not following the Jesus of the Gospels. And political dominance over others, this as well is not Jesus' salvation. Jesus lived his whole life outside of traditional political power. Jesus was not only living in a place colonized uh, by Rome, but he doesn't even seek to try and influence the Jewish puppet government in the Sanhedrin. Jesus shows us his ministry and the mission of the 72. It doesn't take political office to change the world. It doesn't take political power to be able to change people's minds or shape people's lives. And this, I believe, is a message we just must, need, must offer back to Christians who have lost sight of this. So I can stand up here and, and talk about how I, I, I disagree with white nationalism, and it's very good, but we get to this question, well, what can we do? What now? What do we do in the face of this? I think we start with the scriptures, and I think it's right and good here to pray with the psalmist for restoration and salvation. It's right, as I said at the beginning, to pray this psalm as a psalm of lament while acknowledging the evils in our world. We must do this and continue to resist evil, even as evil, even evils that call themselves Christian. But how do we confront evil and people led astray? Ultimately, I believe Jesus teaches us and experience shows us that love and committed deep relationships are how we heal and how we spread the gospel. Jesus tells us two very pertinent things here. First and foremost, 
love your enemies. And secondly, do not be afraid. We, as Christians, to echo Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., should seek the conversion of those led astray and the destruction of evil, not the destruction of people, even people we disagree with on profound, profound issues. But I want to make an important caveat here, too. Uh, in Luke 10, it, this kind of interesting passage where Jesus says, you offer your peace to people, but sometimes that peace will return to you. And I think that we experience this sometimes. If we offer peace to someone and, that's rege and that is rejected, there are times when we give up. And here I would say we can put safety first, safety of our communities and safety of ourselves. Uh, but for those of us who have some privilege, like myself as a straight white man, I'm very happy and, and want to use that privilege uh, to try and speak into people's lives, use that um, to try and change people's uh, minds. But I understand this is very much not the case for everyone. And if you offer peace to someone and that's rejected, and it's not your place as a disciple to always continue in that. But I want to just give a few thoughts on, on my engagement with uh, white Christian nationalists over the years. Um, and, and recently, I've been going deeper in a relationship with someone who has really gone into some theology that I find really, really disturbing. And I could choose, I believe, to you know, publicly call this person out, uh, you know, make some big condemnations on, on social media or something like that. But instead, uh, because we do have a friendship that goes back a long time, I've had the chance to push back at them over coffee, to tell them very frankly how, how dangerous I think their theology is getting, but to speak to them um, in truth very frequently. Um, and I really believe that truth is an antidote to so much of this uh, white Christian nationalist theology. Jesus says that the truth shall set us free. And if we live a different way, live into the truth and offer truth to people, it would change their minds. It, and God will do this. If we live the truth uh, that people of different races, different classes, different, different genders can live together peaceably, and if we offer this truth to people, uh, then we will have the chance and God will open, in many cases, open their eyes and see that they do have much to learn from people who are very much different from them. I think we need to prioritize even more living something different from the world and this difference includes living in diverse communities, but it also includes engaging with people even when we strongly disagree with them and struggle to connect with them in God's name rather than simply cutting people off and, and further siloing into communities where we, only dis, where we only agree. And if we try and bridge this gap, I believe God will do the rest. And here we can think a little bit about how did Jesus deal with people wh whom he disagreed with? Um, did he just call them out publicly and never speak to them? Did he call them out and cut them off? Or was he honest with them frequently, over and over, inviting them into something new, something deeper, something richer, his kingdom? Of course, this takes, I believe, a posture of humility. We, as all Christians, need to call other Christians to truly submit their lives and politics to Jesus as well. If we approach others with kindness and humility, they tend to respond in kind. And I believe we're all, as Christians, Jesus' servants. We are servants following a servant. And God will ultimately fight our battles. The kingdom has already come near, and it isn't dependent on who is in the White House. I wonder as well, reading these two scriptures, who are the 72? They're just unnamed disciples. We don't know who they are. And yet their contribution they made was immeasurable. 
uh, and into the growing of the gospel. And sometimes I feel that we as Christians, we, we tend to look at the big names. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Mary or Martha. But sometimes we may be called to be like the 72, simply going from house to house and offering peace. And we plant seeds that we don't always see grow. These are not always easy relationships to try and maintain. And yet we plant and hope that God grows. So what does restoration and salvation truly look like for us today in 2022 in North America? On this front, I want to share with you a story uh, from my time at World Conference. And this is the second time I've been able to attend Mennonite World Conference, and there were representatives from about 50 countries from around the world. And really, it, it always, this is the second time I've been able to attend, and both times I've been able to attend, it's reminded me of a true cross-sectional slice of the kingdom of God, a racially diverse gathering from many, many nations, many languages. And frankly, there's also some pretty significant theological difference in that group as well, as there is in any Christian gathering. And yet, we are united in worshiping, following the Jesus of the Gospels. Now, at this gathering, uh, we sang a lot of worship songs. Uh, I was raised singing hymns, so I tend to perform, prefer that. But, you know, worship songs, uh, I find them worshipful sometimes, not always for 10 days in a row when we have wor literally three worship sessions a day. Um, but one time when we were playing soccer, uh, there was this worship song going that I'd never heard before. Um, and the chorus of the song, which was repeated really, really frequently, was let the lion roar, referring to Jesus. And this, at first, sort of unsettled me. And I was like, wow, I, I don't think about Jesus being a lion very frequently. Uh, I, as a Mennonite, I'm much more uh, comfortable with this image of, of Jesus being a lamb. But I think that these two images of Jesus really do go together. Uh, particularly in the book of Revelation, Jesus is portrayed both as a lion and the lamb. And I think we, as racially diverse Christians, Christians committed to diversity, maybe we need to think more about Jesus as Jesus the lion as well. Perhaps we need to be restored to preaching to fellow Christians that our lion is also a lamb, a prince of peace who saves us via faithfulness, and whose salvation and restoration are not to be found in a violent defending of the worldly order, but instead they're to be found among the 72 and those who walk in those footsteps. Maybe the kingdom of God is there to be found in dusty sandals and cracked feet of humble Christians who eat, sing, pray, work for the common good, and offer peace to everyone, no matter the political situation they find themselves in. Let's pray. God, you continue to send us out as sheep among wolves. Give us the courage to seek the restoration that Jesus modeled. Not a restoration of an earthly kingdom, but the restoration of a spirit of courage, gentleness, healing, love, and mutual support that transcends boundaries. Open our eyes to how the kingdom continues to be near to us today. Give us hope patience and understanding as we call for your restoration to fall on many Christians who have forgotten you came as a servant, not a king. Protect us, guide us, and be with us. Amen.